Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. Let's get to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlantic Canada. Today is December 16, 2020, and David Chandy, CEO of the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council, joins us to talk about the outlook for 2021 and beyond. In my opinion, at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, APEC did a great job of pivoting to being the primary source of economic insight for our region. I found myself routinely going to their website or social media feeds or tuning into one of their events on a related subject. Today, I talked with David about a wide range of issues, including how the pandemic is expected to impact the economy in 2021 and beyond, whether or not we will see structural changes to the economy and other related issues. We range from mental health and the economy through to the vision for APEC over the next 20 years. I hope you enjoy our conversation. David Chandy, welcome to Growing Pains. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council? We are an independent research organization, and our mission is really to be the source for research for insights and ideas. And I emphasize both insights and ideas. We do a lot of analysis. We do a lot of work trying to understand what's happening in the economy, what's really going on, what are the trends. But we don't always want to be just looking at what are the issues and what are the challenges, but what, what can we do about it? What are the priorities? So it's very much trying to bring the insights and the ideas to help support a healthy, inclusive, and sustainable economy. So again, healthy in terms of a vibrant economy, but it's had a new twist, obviously, this year with COVID. Uh, physical health is a very important part of that. Uh, it needs to be inclusive. Uh, and again, with COVID this year, we know that not everyone has Im- been impacted the same and benefited the same, and they're also sustainable. So not just environmentally, but in terms of uh, fiscally and the, the whole economy. So that's what we're here for, to provide that research and insight. We're not policymakers. We're not here to make those decisions. We're not the business people that are driving the economy, but to help them understand what's happening in this region so that they can make better decisions and better policies so that we can all prosper and see the benefits of that. So that's really where we play. We're a very small organization. We're based in Halifax, but our mandate is regionally, uh, and that's our focus. Uh, how are you funded? So uh, we have really three main funding sources. So we have a membership base. So we're not a a member organization like a chamber or an industry association that's there to represent their members, but we are member supported. uh, And those members uh, support APEC because they want access to some of our research and understanding. They get member-only publications. They get discounts for our events. Uh, So they support us for what they get out of it and the benefits for them, but also because they want that regional independent voice that's speaking and growing helping to grow the region because if the region prospers their own businesses will prosper so member supported uh, memberships uh, secondly events uh, so we've done a lot of conferences and this has been a big challenge for us this year with COVID because we've lost a lot of that in-person revenues and the sponsorships that go with that but that uh, traditionally has been an important part and then the third piece is really our funded research so we do contract research for business for government uh, tackling some of the bigger policy questions so it's really a fairly diverse base uh, which has certainly helped us this year but uh, certainly been challenging from from the event revenue source this year. 
So, David, you're fairly new in the job. I think you've been, what, a year and a half now? I don't remember. Just exactly. over two years officially in, in the role, two and a half since I took over as interim. So, yeah, it's been <laughs> the years are starting to tick back. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? So how did you weave your way into ultimately running uh, this regional think tank? Well, I grew up in the UK and I grew up in a time when Mrs. Thatcher was coming to power in the UK and we had you know, a massive recession in the early 80s. You saw unemployment rates going through the roof and interest rates going through the roof. And as I had an option of taking an economics course or a music course in school, I, for whatever reason, chose to do uh, economics. And it just fascinated me because what I was seeing on the news with unemployment rates, I was reading about and understanding in the class. And it just helped me, like this subject is applicable and it also starts to give you this sense of, uh, you know, maybe you can then help uh, make the world a better place. So that's really kind of what triggered my interest in economics uh, back as a teenager. And then I went on to then kind of study at university, uh, eventually uh, was in the States uh, doing a second bachelor's degree, met my wife, who's from New Brunswick. Uh, so we got married. We were in the UK for a few years uh, and then decided that she would be better off in Canada. So Halifax was the best option for me for finding work and still being somewhat close to her family. Uh, and the plan was if it works in Halifax, we'll stay there. If not, we know we've got to move to some of the bigger markets for economists in Ottawa or Toronto. So we moved here at the end of 99 and it's it's worked out. Uh, so I got a six-week contract at APEC that got extended for another six months and then another six months. And then I had an opportunity to be made permanent. Uh, so I've just spent my the last 20, over 20, years working at APEC in various research capacities, taking on increasing responsibilities, and then uh, the opportunity to take on the, the senior role, which is where I am today. It's always interesting to hear what motivated people to get into their career. I had um, That's an interesting story, going back to Margaret uh, Thatcher. She's an interesting uh, politician, because I think a lot of times politicians, they age better as with time. So even nowadays, there's a lot of reflection on Richard Nixon more positively, right? So around China and so on. I'm not sure the Iron Lady, I think she's going a little bit in the other direction. I'm not sure. That's Maybe that's just what I read. But uh, um, but she did bring Usher in massive changes, and I think a lot of it was for the better. Um, so I wanted to start our conversation today by talking about COVID-19. I, I find you did a great job of pivoting to being a primary source of COVID-19 insight in the, for the regional economy. The volume of data, the events you put on, everything was impressive. Journalists would call me and say, where do I get information? I'd say, go to APEC, right? I mean, because I think you had done such a good job of tracking GDP and employment, maybe not so much GDP, some of the, but, but most of the other indicators um, uh, very uh, diligently, and then also communicating that, and then also looking at how it impacts various segments of the economy. So how did you, am I wrong there, or did you significantly ramp up activity? And then if, if so, how could you do that? Just you're more productive working from home, or, or, or how were you able to do that? Yeah, and again, I think we were we were tracking this situation with COVID. I remember I went to Ottawa in middle of February. I had a, a meeting there. I was went with my wife. It was uh, Valentine's Day, and there was there was cases in in Ottawa at that time. We were kind of all concerned should we go, but I'd given a presentation like two or three days before uh, talking about the economic elk and highlighted three risks. And one of those risks was around oil prices, but the other one was COVID, and if we don't contain this, but you know, it was still you know 
there was cases, but it wasn't the major concern. And then within a month, it's just these cases are rapidly appearing everywhere. And, you know, we were starting to talk about, well, we probably need to write something on this. Maybe we should have a webinar on this. And we were just starting to mull over the options. And then I remember waking up, it was the Friday night, Saturday morning, waking up at three o'clock in the morning and thinking like, this is just too big because you were starting to sense what governments were going to do. And as an economist, you know, well, if you shut down the economy, you're going to have some major economic impact. So it was a question like, we have to do something on this. Like, this is too big. And our board had approved a new strategic plan uh, like a month earlier and about trying to position APEC to focus on the biggest issues for this region and kind of deliver that stuff in, in a more effective way. And so I just felt like we have to lean into this. Like, we don't have any money to do this, but if we don't tackle this topic, then people are going to question the value of APEC. So uh, I got up, I drafted a plan. I actually reached out to my staff that Saturday morning, which I wouldn't normally do. I wanted everyone to buy in, like, we're going to have to do this. And we had some strategic choices to make. So, you know, Monday morning we met and within I had an outline for a webinar and said, you know, we are doing a webinar. And so two days later we had our first webinar and we had a thousand people register for that, which is you know, out of our scale for a normal webinar. And you know, we don't normally put them together that fast. And we were just, we just hit the ground running and we didn't have funding. Like we were just taking a risk. Uh, we said we were going to make this available to members and non-members because this was such a big issue. People were just struggling to figure out what's going on. How's it going to impact? So we leaned in heavily and we just took a risk hoping that our members would understand that we're doing this for the region's sake and not just for them, even though they don't get their member benefits. Uh, so the webinars were free. And then we just started pumping out as much analysis on sectors and different aspects to help fill in some of the details. Because again, the challenge with this was we just don't know what's happening. And any official data would come to at the best two months or three months or four months after the fact. And that was too late. We needed to know. So we started collecting our own data, reaching out to uh, individuals, but just helping people understand what's really going on. How, and then, you know, we kept up with that. We did five webinars in total on this as we started to see data and kind of give people more insight. So that was what we did. We were able to repurpose some uh, research funding for this. Uh, and then as we moved on, we got some additional research funding to start to put uh, some more research report so it kind of evolved as we went uh, but certainly we kind of took some risks on that and you know because we've lost our own revenues we have we had to make some of our own staffing adjustments so we've had less staff to do more so it's certainly been challenging there's been a lot of extra work on all the staff so it's been challenge uh, it's not that our productivity has necessarily been higher uh, there's just been a lot of hours dedicated and it's just been very focused uh, we were supposed to release a new report looking ahead to the next 20 years uh, that very week and we said look no one cares about the next 20 years if they don't know where the next 20 weeks is coming from so we kind of put that on hold but it's going to be re-releasing that very shortly but uh, we just had to kind of completely shift our focus lean into this and then like everyone else figure it out as we went well, I think your brand has become more ubiquitous over this period. So I think, yeah, I mean, hopefully you can monetize that and, and build a stronger base moving forward when maybe it's not so urgent. Like like you said, with a pandemic, everybody was just reaching out in all directions, trying to figure out where the credible voices. And I think APEC uh, stepped up and played an important role. Um, I wanted to ask you about the impact on the economy just in general. So... I think everybody knows that there was a lot less cases 
in Atlanta, Canada in general than the rest of the country, probably the rest of North America. Um, but there was also stiffer lockdowns, right? So in terms of 14 days, everybody coming in and out, that was not the case in places like Ontario. Um, you know, so, and even the quickness to switch from, you know, it depends on the province, but in New Brunswick, for example, you know, if there was two or three cases, they'd, they'd flip into orange pretty quickly. So how did that hurt the economy or did that actually help the economy? What's the, what's the broad prognosis there? Did, did our economy take a harder hit because of the tightness of the restrictions or were we actually slightly better off because those restrictions meant that we had a lot less cases? I think there's to some aspects on either way. I think if you just look at the broad parameters of, you know, we've never had a recession like this. This was induced by government making health policy decisions that had dramatic impacts on the economy. So, you know, you look at the declining in employment in Atlantic Canada in those first two months, uh, it was 10 times worse than the 2008-2009 recession. So a 15% drop in employment compared to 1.5%. And this happened in two months. This was not drawn out over nine months as uh, in the last recession. So and when you look at most metrics, we were hit just as hard as the rest of Canada, you know, give or take. Uh, retail sales maybe didn't get hit quite as hard. Uh, exports, particularly with oil prices, got hit harder. But for the most part, we got hit the same. Where we started to benefit because we had some fairly tight restrictions and we did not have as many cases, we don't have as many people traveling, we were able to contain COVID-19 faster. So you certainly see in PI New Brunswick in the data, they, they weren't hit quite as hard. They were started able to reopen faster. They started to recover faster. Uh, Nova Scotia took a bit longer, Newfoundland a bit you know, longer after that, and especially you know, longer-term issues there with oil prices. So overall, we've done quite well, but I don't think there was any major differences between Atlantic Canada and the rest of the region because we had these same types of restrictions. I think when you think about the Atlantic bubble and you know the 14-day isolation, it certainly helps us in one sense. Uh, and, and as we allow people to travel in the region for family reasons, for businesses, I think that was important. Uh, I don't think it was ever designed to salvage the tourism season, but you know we took a trip to visit my parents, in-laws in New Brunswick. We spent a few days there. So I think people were doing that in province and kind of maritime travel. So I think it helped. Um, but I think the bigger issue and the concern, and so when we pushed for the Atlantic bubble ourselves, it was very much, this is a stepping stone to opening up to the rest of Canada and urging governments to think about how do you do that safely? And I think this is where, you know, we might see the benefits of we're not in Ontario, we're not in Quebec, we're not in Alberta, we're not seeing these, you know, this big second wave. However, uh, I know we've lost one member because of what's happening here in the region because they can't travel here for their business. They're concerned about a lack of investment, lack of people coming in. I know other individuals don't open the borders because we want to stay safe here and other businesses uh, it's going to hurt our long-term investment so we're not seeing that you don't see the investment that doesn't happen you don't see that loss uh, but i think there's a real concern here so although we are now starting to see vaccines starting to kind of be put in place uh, if you look at those projections it's going to be the fall uh, so, you know the latter part of last year before 
the whole population will be vaccinated. So what does that mean for our tourism season? What does that mean for business travel? If we don't have a plan in place, uh, a business, they need to plan, they need to know. And so I'm very concerned that without a plan, without a non-vaccine strategy around testing or something, uh, there's going to be some economic consequences. So yes, I think it helps us in the initial, uh, but I think the longer it goes on, those costs are actually going to grow uh, and I, I am very much concerned about, you know, the business investment, the business travel uh, and the potential economic implications, which you may not see directly, but it doesn't mean to say that they're not there. Yeah. And I think that's one of our challenges is that when you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, you're breathing a sigh of relief and you're just sort of waiting to get there. But I think your point is valid. We've got, you know, probably three quarters of of next year where there's going to be continued disruption to the economy, particularly tourism next summer. So I think you're right that there needs to be a plan or at least a, an understanding of that and maybe some efforts to mitigate it. Although I like to joke that New Brunswick in particular has a tourism trade deficit. In other words, if New Brunswickers all spent their tourism dollars in the province, we'd actually have a larger tourism season. Uh, but of course it doesn't work out that way. Um, so the reason I asked you that question was because I, you know, everybody talks about the health side of it and the, which is the, obviously in a pandemic, that's the number one issue. And then people talk about, you know, rights and my right to wear a mask or not wear a mask. And, you know, this is the end of freedom as we know it, so on. But just from a straight economic perspective, I was trying to get at, you know, if you think about what happened in Asia with Taiwan and these places, in fact, some of the most strictest measures early on ended up having the best economic outcomes long term. And I think the argument coming out of Alberta and a number of U.S. jurisdictions was, well, you don't lock down because it's going to kill the economy. So maybe for future reference, you kill the economy for a few weeks or months until you, you know, kill or bring massively bring down the virus. I don't know. Uh, do you have a thought on that? Do we like what? Where do you sit on that? Do you do you? I don't know, because again, the big issue there is government incentives too, right? So the government pumped in billions and billions of dollars, so that had to help. But what's the best solution? If you, if somebody came to you and said, okay, David, we're going to have this exact same pandemic in, two, in three years, or better yet, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't tell you when, but within the next 10 years, we're going to have this exact same pandemic again. How would you, how would you from an economic perspective, how would you tell them to respond? Well, I certainly think what I've seen from what happened in Europe and what I've seen in other jurisdictions that some were too quick to reopen. Uh, they reopened travel in Europe and to me, well, they hadn't dealt with the virus the way we had here. We had fewer cases. We were able almost to eliminate it. Uh, and then we started to kind of relax even our internal borders very slowly. Whereas in Europe, there seemed to be a lot of traveling and the people were then bringing back. And then some economies, they wanted to reopen before they had really, I think, got the, that pandemic and control. So as soon as you started to get that social interaction, masks were not necessarily mandatory at that time, you certainly then had this spread. So I do think from our experience, you know, if you can, because uh, I think there was a lot of debate, you know, do you need to kill the virus and eliminate it or do you just have to get it down to a low enough level that the hospitals are not overloaded? And I think, you know, from what I've seen, this, this particular virus seems to spread so quickly and so easily, uh, even with masks and everything else. So if you can, 
have those policies in place for a very short time, but enough to eliminate essentially those cases. And again, we had border controls that stopped that kind of coming in. If you can then manage that, you should have then been able to open up the economy a lot faster. And we didn't actually do that. We still had a lot of restrictions on what we could do. So you know, I was advocating, well, if we've eliminated it here, we should be able to reopen our economy. But as we said from the beginning of this, Atlantic Canada's economy depends not just on what's happening here. It depends upon what happens in Ontario and Quebec. 50% of our interprovincial exports, 70% of our international exports go to the state. So it's not just what we do. So I think you can do what you can do in your region, but this really depends on what ha- everyone happens. So my advice would be, yes, if you can do it, if you can shut it down and have people working from home and help businesses through that and then start to kind of quickly reopen, I think that seems to be the better strategy from what I've seen. Um, but again, it's you've got to have people willing to go along with that. And if they're not, then that's where you start to see issues. And I think that's partly where we've had the second wave here in this region. Uh, you've got people maybe not fully following those protocols that were in place, and then it, it very quickly starts to spread. So I think we did the right thing in pulling back sooner. Um, and then, okay, let's try to reopen a bit sooner. That That's kind of what I'm seeing. I'm not the expert from the health point of view, but I think from what I've seen from an economic point of view, that's kind of where I would lean. I think that's, I would tend to agree with that. So if, you know, if you're worried about the small businesses in Wyoming, uh, leaving them open and letting this carnage unfold the way it has, I don't think that that in retrospect turned out to be the right solution. If you're ultimate concern is the best economic impact and in fact that that specific option that you outlined also has great health impacts and positive health impacts i wanted to turn a little bit now to the region itself and coming out of covid19 um but I, i i don't i want to use that term lightly because i want i want this to be really about 2021 so let's say in the wake or in the interim period as we move through the vaccinations and try to get back to some sense of normal. What What is really keeping you up at night for this region? Are you, is tourism what's really on your mind or is, are there other things, some of the export industries? What's really bothering you these days when you look at the data? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a few things on my mind that we can kind of talk about them. I think one, and again, you know, we're economists, we talk about the economy and people spending money, but I think the mental health dimension uh, it's not something we talk about a lot as economists, but I did a, a video kind of commentary early on just talking about that link between health and the economy. So we know that, uh, you know, if people lose their job, that has implications for their mental health. We also know that people struggling with mental health issues, uh, they, you know, there's a lot of people not going to work because they're struggling. So there's, there's this two-way linkage. And I think, uh, you know, we we, we may underestimate uh, the cost of that and the, the struggle that has been and, the, you know, the cost of a second lockdown and just how hard that can be on people. So that emotional toil uh, when people still have jobs and they've got parents in a senior's home they can't visit with and they've got children who are now have to be maybe in Nova Scotia at home for another week and like, these do take its toll on people's ability to work and, and function. So I think that is still going to be with us for some time. So I think that shouldn't be underestimated, even though it might be hard to pinpoint you know, the exact data and the economic cost. So I think that's the first thing I would emphasize. The second thing I would emphasize is our, our youth. Um, when you look at the data, they have certainly been hit the hardest from unemployment perspective. Uh, When you look at uh, a lot of universities online, my daughter's studying online, 
that just does not work for her. She needs to be in that social setting. She needs to be able to talk to her peers about uh, classes. And so I'm really concerned about the, the toll it's taken on young people who either can't work, who are having to study online. And, you know, when the, the survey data suggests, you know, they're struggling the most in terms of mental health implications. So this is our future. I'm really concerned about the quality of education. Our labs really need to be in person. I'm not sure the home biology experience are really the same as being a laboratory. So what does that do if you're not having those programs? What does that do to that quality of education? What, how are employers going to look at this COVID generation of graduates? Will they look at them the same way? So that is a concern because they can certainly see those scarring effects for some time. So mental health, youth. And then the third area would be just around, you know, specific sectors. I think, you know, you look at the economy as a whole in Atlantic Canada and employment kind of getting very close to where it was uh, pre-pandemic. Typically, we don't focus on month-to-month changes because there's so much volatility, but the size of the magnitude with COVID has been so big. We've, we've kind of uh, kind of done those kind of February to March and February to, to April and February to November kind of comparisons. But I think what you see is it's... Overall, we're kind of back to where we are. We close retail sales, employment, but it, it's not even. And so those key sectors, you know, restaurants, uh, I've been advocating for some time, we need a solution for restaurants. You can't put your hope in a vaccine. How quickly is that going to be in place that they can get back to full capacity? They need a different solution. So I think this is where we should have been investing a lot of money to try to find some practical solution that doesn't require a vaccine so that they can operate at full capacity. And as the people there mentioned, people feel safe going to a restaurant. And then, of course, all the travel-related industries. So you know the accommodation industry, our airports, our airlines, we're losing capacity here. So if an airport doesn't reopen, how quickly will we get those airlines back, given that they're marginal, kind of probably less profitable routes? That's going to really impact our long-term recovery. So these issues around, yeah, okay, many of us might have not lost their jobs. We've not seen any major change in income. Yes, we're doing more shopping online. Yes, we don't have the same social. There's been impacts, but many of us have not been impacted. Others have been impacted. been more than compensated with benefits others were not uh, fully compensated and others are going to struggle to really get back into the job market so i think there's going to be some long-term issues for certain demographics and then certain industries you know, even with a vaccine i just don't see at the moment a tourism industry coming back next year unless we start to ease some of those restrictions or have some way to manage it and you know you look at SARS you look at uh, international air travel in previous situations it takes years and until this vaccine is this is a global vaccination thing right we've got 7 billion people here so 50% of our attendees at our outlook conference says I'm not traveling until there's a vaccine so how quickly are you going to restore confidence how quickly is that going to come back and unless there's demand we're not going to get those airlines and until we get those air capacity back that's going to really impact business investment here and at export so there's a lot of longer term issues that we really need to be thinking about just in terms of getting some of those key sectors back to kind of where they need to be for the health of the the overall economy because travel is key uh, we need it this is this is not just a you know okay i can you know cook more meals i can do more takeout i, I can manage if i can't go to a restaurant but airlines and travel uh, it's key for a lot of investment and business activity so that's really kind of a, a, a critical sector i don't think the 
typical people and probably even many of our listeners understand just how trade dependent Atlanta, Canada is. Now, that's a small jurisdiction problem. It's not just New Brunswick or Nova Scotia or PEI. Any small jurisdiction is going to be far more reliant on trade because they don't manufacture their own pianos and their own televisions and their own cars and most of their food and right so there's so what you do is you get really good at the stuff you're good at exporting whether that's goods or services and then you have to just import a ton of stuff to survive in terms of your economy um so yes i think that that whole the air travel situation i've written about that i think it's a real concern if that takes five or ten years to come back to where it was before in terms of uh, um, um, services, in terms of price and competition. Now, Halifax should be fine, right? I think as the main regional airport, but all the secondary airports, St. John, Moncton, uh, Cape Breton, uh, I think those airports might come back a lot slower and some of them might actually close. And I'm very concerned that, you know, I talk about instead of building back better, let's at least build back to where we were before. Let's start with a, a little bit of a lower ambition. I think you're right about youth. That's a really, really super good point. I, I really don't like when economists, you know, every almost every week in the Economist magazine, there's stories about how that's going to shave 2.9% off our GDP over the, right? I mean, they we try to model everything. We try to yes. boil everything down. And I think it's a little silly to try and boil everything down to a dollar value. But there's no doubt that K to 12 and post-secondary education has been dramatically impacted here. And it will be you know, through throughout probably the rest of uh, certainly the rest of this school year and maybe even well into the next school year. So I think that's that's certainly correct. And the mental health thing, you know, I'm glad you raised it. It's not usually something that economists talk about, but it 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 does bear very much on the economy, you know, in terms of and also quality of life. And those things are tied together very closely. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically uh, a very specific kind of inside baseball question. And I gave you this question in advance. I hope you read the questions because it's a bit esoteric, but we had Marcel Lebrun and David Alston on very early on uh, to talk about the impact of uh, COVID-19 on the IT sector. And they pushed it in a different direction. They, they started to say that they were very worried about entrepreneurship in general. So their concern was that, you know, you entrepreneurs always face a number of risks. They face market risk, business risk, cost risk, uh, government policy risk. And then you now you come along, you say, okay, we're going to put a pandemic risk on top of that. So their concern was that, you know, parents would stop or, or significantly reduce their encouragement of young people to go to start businesses. They were concerned that, you know, somewhere around 35, 40% of all of our business owners are now over the age of 55. And we're not, we don't have this pipeline of young entrepreneurs coming through the system. So they were trying to speculate how that could impact our economy moving forward. And I think it could be significant. So have you given any thought to how the pandemic specifically in this region is going to impact entrepreneurship? And when I talk about entrepreneurship, I'm using that term in the widest possible light, right? So everything from restaurant owners to, you know, manufacturers, somebody that's got a great idea to manufacture pewter for the global market. Do you have any thoughts about how this pandemic is going to impact entrepreneurship? 
Yeah, so there's, there's maybe a number of dimensions to that. And one of the things that we've been trying to emphasize and communicate to governments is a need to have a, a, a clear plan. We've done a lot of work on regulation. And so you know, businesses need to know what's... What are the rules of the game, uh, especially in the pandemic? Uh, how does it work? Uh, they want consistency between sectors and jurisdictions, and they need some certainty. And so even though the pandemic creates a lot of uncertainty, knowing, well, when will the borders reopen? Like, what's the trigger points that are going to lead you to kind of go to another shutdown? So I think these factors, and I don't know if governments fully, I know they're struggling with their own decisions and trying to make sense of data and, and research, because this is a very a rapidly developing situation but I don't know if they fully understand, uh, you know, if you suddenly make a decision on Friday that you're in your shutdown or you're reopening, like businesses just don't operate that way. And, you know, if you're planning on a tourism season this next year, you need to know, am I going to spend those millions of dollars on renovations if I'm going to go another year without? So I don't, I think that is a big impact on on entrepreneurship and businesses, just that struggling to have a government framework on this is how we're going to manage this. And I, I'm not sure we're doing as good of a job on that as we can. So I certainly think there's a, a negative impact there where businesses just, look, I just can't cope with this. And I think we're starting to see that in the second way with, you know, some businesses managed with the first one. Okay, this is it. I just can't go through another kind of shutdown financially or otherwise. So there's certainly that measure where I think we could do a bit more to help create the environment where businesses at least can make their own decisions and they've got all these costs and risks as you talked about, but at least they've got a better sense of how governments might be planning to manage the health risk. Um, I think secondly, you mentioned kind of the, the aging number of uh, people in business and succession planning, I think was an issue before. Uh, we have an aging population that's across the economy, it's across our labor force, and it also then applies to uh, our business sector. And again, uh, we were looking to find a place to stay uh, near Digby. We were on a little kind of mini vacation in August. And, you know, one of the places I looked at, he said on his website, I was planning to retire next year, but I'm bringing it a year forward. So I think there's those stories around. Like, this is just not worth me kind of going through that. So I think that uh, there's probably some acceleration there. I think in terms of young people, I think that we've seen a lot of innovation uh, in this situation. A lot of businesses pivot I think from that point of view, it's to me, it says entrepreneurship is alive and well. Uh, people understand the need to innovate and pivot, whether it's going to online sales or, you know, being able to push to, I want to be able to sell liquor with my takeout meals, like just businesses making a lot of changes. And I think that to me says, you know, people, when the situation changes, respond to that. So to me, I'm kind of encouraged by that. And I don't necessarily see uh, parents discouraging their children from doing that. I think, uh, you know, a lot of people see there's a lot of new opportunities and things are different. So with remote working and like we need new solutions. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to find solutions to help other people kind of grow through this. So uh, I think a lot of the government benefits might discourage some people from working. I think that's where we have to be careful that those are now working to get people back into work uh, and not just kind of encouraging people to maybe not work at all. So I think that's maybe my only caution there. And I think the other, go ahead. No, for, for finish your thought because yeah, so I'm going to I'm I'm push you a little bit on that, but I'll let you finish your thought fine. first. So, and my last thought is, you know, I think we need this mix of there's always this debate in this region about we've just seen Verifin, uh with a big kind of uh, sellout. We've seen this in the past. A lot of people have concerns. So is this good for the economy? And I think we've done work on the past on foreign investment, and it's not so much the foreign control; it's the 
the internationalization of the business. So whether it's a Canadian multinational or a a foreign-based multinational, we have to be outward-looking. So if we're open to new ideas, we're open to learning from the best, we're reaching out into international markets, we're bringing in the best products, we're attracting the best labor. To me, that is key. And I think we've seen in this region a lot of very successful businesses. So I'm less concerned about startups. I think we see a lot of startups and a lot of innovative companies. My biggest concern is scale-up. Uh, when you close a manufacturing plant in Rome, New Brunswick, and you lose 500 jobs, and you know the new firms—it's a IT firm of 10 people in Moncton. It's a different skill set. It's a different. You need a lot of those firms, or you need them to grow very rapidly to replace those 500 jobs geographically, industry, and skill-wise. So there's, we're in this economic industrial restructuring, but I think as this economy grows, we need to scale up these firms. We have a lot of techie firms. We have a lot of successful firms, but you know, where's the next Clearwater? Where's the next Verifin? How do we get them? to that stage i think that to me is the critical issue how do we get the scale up so that these firms can get the scale and capacity because it is certainly hard being a small business when you know we're a we're a six people organization we just don't have the specialization on communications or marketing or or whatever it is so i understand those pressures as a small business trying to do everything with a small team so it's a scale up is really key so i think that's right and i think that that's why we shouldn't be necessarily averse to uh, national or international investment. Because if, I, if I'm if i a Radian 6 and I become part of Salesforce, I immediately am into this global supply chain. I'm into this global, uh, you know, all of the things you just mentioned, all the defects of being a small firm disappear. I've got a VP of international sales. I've got a VP of, of R&D. So yes, you lose the locus of control shifts somewhere else. But as long as there's a commitment, as long as there's a value proposition to having your Atlantic Canadian operation, I think it can actually be good. Um, and then hopefully that seed capital gets reinvested in, in new startups. But I want to ask you a very specific question. It's, it's not even related to exporters because it's something that I've been seeing pre-pandemic. And I don't even know if it's going to be bad on the economy. And I don't even know if it's going to be a major trend, but I'm going to ask your thoughts on it. So I went to see the dentist here a few months ago when we were allowed to again. And I said, I said, geez, are you able to make a buck? So this guy owned his own small dentist firm and, you know, he was doing fine. And he said, I don't know, ask my boss. And I said, what do you mean ask my boss? He says, well, I sold out two years ago. I'm, I'm part of a national, whatever, regional or national um, group of dentist office. And so he said, now I don't really care. I come in, I get paid and whether there's, you know, 10 customers or 20. And I thought that was interesting. And then, but if you look at it more broadly, insurance brokerage firms used to be all, almost all owned locally. They're now increasingly owned by international firms. If you look even at funeral homes, there's been a bit of a national consolidation. If you look at even doctors' offices, uh, not doctors, um, optometrists and, and eye doctors. Uh, and then a whole other sort of substrata of firms that used to be locally owned are increasingly owned by national and international firms. Uh, and not to say anything about retail, right? And what's happening in terms of retail. So I guess the question would be number one, am I worried about that too much? Uh, so I guess it's a two part question. Is that a trend that you see and you see accelerating and two, should I be worried about it? In other words, if we have three international pizza chains, serving our pizza market, is that fine as opposed to 
20 pizza chains and 17 of them are little tiny, you know, Gino's and Geo's local pizza shops. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that a bad thing for the economy to lose these little tiny locally owned businesses? Because once, once these national chains come in, there's a lot of advantages. They bring scale, they bring technology, they might bring research and innovation, but you lose local control, you lose local uh, ownership, and then I assume you lose profits as they're not being turned back into the local economy. So A, do you think that trend is actually something that's going to get worse or do you even see that trend, the, the, the nationalization or internationalization of a lot of these local services? And B, am I worried about nothing? Yeah, I mean, I don't have data to be able to say, you know, this is happening to a faster or slower degree than in the past. Um, I certainly think with our economy and the way things are developing, uh, I think the pressures on a small business without economies of scale are certainly, it, it seems to be greater. Uh, it's just you need to know about digitalization. You need to know about uh, marketing. You need to, and like, there seems to be a lot more things you need to manage and you kind of need some specialized expertise. You can't just kind of do it, you know, I'll just do my own website. Like you you need to be more sophisticated, I think, to, to survive in this kind of digital age. So I think there are those pressures that might certainly create that data if that's certainly what's happening. And so I'm not disputing your anecdotal evidence. I just, I don't have any broader data to be able to confirm that one way or the other so you know if that trend were to continue and accelerate for those factors i I wouldn't necessarily be surprised i think the question is you know what what are the pros and cons of that i certainly think there's you know you look at our export industries and for most of our export products uh you know you've got one refinery or two refineries you've got a michelin with three plants like it's very concentrated in a few small companies and a few small producers but they've got the global scale and presence Uh, the one industry where that is not the case is our seafood processing sector and you know that's a concern to me because there's just so many smaller players and do they really have the scale and capacity to market to china to invest in value-added products and innovation that's my concern where we're kind of too much on the small side and we need a few more bigger players it doesn't mean to say you can't have the small players but so i i I do think there's an advantage to scale Uh, i think when it comes to a chain the question is what are they bringing uh, there's, there's different models and if you lose all your control and now you just kind of it's a like cookie dough you just follow the recipe and you produce it and you've got no control uh, that might work because you're bringing in higher standards and, and innovation uh, but i i know the model that fortis operates they they've got their utilities around the world but they emphasize i want them to kind of be be locally led and driven so i think it's how those organizations do they encourage and facilitate entrepreneurship do they encourage innovation in a local thing that might then go global in that chain how do you kind of manage that so i think that would be my concern there might be economic benefits with the example you said well the doctor doesn't have to worry about managing all these things for himself he just gets his paycheck he can focus on what he does well he doesn't have to be the business person I think there's always a lot of scope for entrepreneurs to compete and they can compete with some of these bigger chains because they offer something different. And then as that grows, they can become that next chain. So I think a healthy competition is important. I'm not, I I don't, I think there's a lot of issues where there's one person in town and that's your only choice. I'm not sure that is good, but I think entrepreneurship and people seeing those opportunities to do something better, do I think those are always there. But how do you ensure you have the scale to 
really do that well? And how, as a business managing maybe lots of little franchises, how do you bring benefits but still facilitate? And it's the same with an employer. You can tell your staff what to do. But you really want some ingenuity. You want some, like, you, there needs to be this two-way. They're giving something. And I think it's the same in a business. You want each business to be bringing something to the whole, and you are then bringing something to the local unit. So to me, that dynamic is important. And in certain cases, it may lean one way or the other. So the benefits and the costs are slightly different. But overall, I wouldn't be as concerned. But it's really a question of how those businesses are run and what they're doing to support, you know, the local economy where they operate and, you know, their kind of corporate sustainability and and those types of responsibilities, how those kind of play out. So I appreciate that response because I'm not I'm certainly not anti big business or anti chains. I think there's a lot of value to a Costco or a Pizza Hut or whatever, because they do have scale. They have the ability to innovate in many ways and so on. But I do think healthy economies have a mix because if you ended up with, you know, two or three law firms in Halifax only and no little tiny ones nipping at their heel or, or, you know, one or three, two or three pizza chains or two or three whatever accounting firms, uh, I do think that that over time would not necessarily be good. And I don't have any data to back that up, but I just think you know, these healthy economies tend to have a number of big players and then they have little players nipping at their heels saying, look, if your prices get out of whack or your customer service gets out of whack, an entrepreneur is going to zoom in and steal some of your market. And I, I like to joke myself that I'm kind of like a mini, I don't know, Walmart version of consultants, right? Because I'm, you know, if you want KPMG or Deloitte and I've got lots of friends in those organizations, you'll pay $325 an hour. If you want David Campbell, you'll pay whatever, a hundred bucks an hour. So it's still, I'm a cheaper version, but you don't get the brand. Yes. So hopefully I keep Deloitte and KPMG a little honest in this market. Uh, and hopefully they, they leave enough crumbs on the table for me to make a, make a buck or two. So I appreciate that. So just in the time we have left, uh, left I wanted to ask you about a couple of things. Uh, the first one is immigration. So I have been pounding on this drum for years and not just as a replacement for retirees. I have felt doing my research going back to the to after the Second World War and that first wave of immigrants that came from Europe, the 1.5 million that came right after the war. And I I have always thought that immigrants are not just about replacing, you know, uh, retirees in the workforce, but that you get this positive momentum, you get this this swell of talent. Um yourself included, David, I knew you were from, from England. That's a nice story. Uh, so, so actually immigrants are not just about filling in gaps in the labor market. They're actually about growing your community, creating a larger base of talent, more entrepreneurs, and actually growing your economy and to be able to public, uh, fund public services properly. So all that said, I worry now that maybe we won't get back to pre-pandemic levels anytime soon. Although, when I saw the federal government actually boosting the overall number for next year, I thought that bodes well because my sense of it would be the feds are primarily worried about Toronto and the biggest cities because that's where the population base is. And if we can get a little bit of crumbs in, in the rest of the country, uh, I think that that's, you know, that's fine. But right. I guess what I'm trying to say is when Toronto's immigration number started to go down and they did, uh, I was worried that there was going to be a backlash. And in fact, in the last couple of years, Toronto, Toronto's numbers have gone back up again. 
And if you don't increase the overall number, that just means less for Hamilton and less for Moncton and less for Halifax. So are you concerned about immigration? First of all, do you agree with me that, I guess, do we need immigrants? Um, and and if so, uh, do you think we're going to get back to pre-pandemic levels and even growth anytime soon? Yeah, so, so on the bigger question, as I mentioned, one of the, the reports we, were, we kind of suspended in the pandemic was kind of a, we've been building our own in-house economic demographic model to be able to really look ahead the next 20 years and get people to look ahead and think about, well, what's what does our future look like? And do we need to maybe start doing some things now to maybe kind of create a better scenario? So whether it's healthcare, whether it's the labor force aging, whether it's our fiscal uh, situation that... I, you know, we're so often driven by the here and now and the immediate crises. And so as we've been coming out of this pandemic, we've been encouraging people to think about some of these longer terms around demographics, uh, the environment, global value change, digitalization, uh, and those types of things. So on the demographic side, you know, we've, we've had to revise our model just because the pandemic's changed a lot of things in the short term. But, you know, it's, it's still telling us, you know, to sustain our population, we need to see in migration. Uh, you know, we've got more deaths than births. The pandemic's not changed dramatically our death rate, um, but that underlying situation is still there. And with the aging population, as more baby boomers retire, uh, it's just going to be a, a, a simple case of our labor force will be shrinking. Uh, so again, uh, if we're going to have the workforce we need to sustain fairly modest rates of growth, we need to be bringing people in. So whether that's coming from other parts of Canada because we've got smaller cities and maybe they're safer for this pandemic or the next pandemic, or whether that's immigrants coming in from other countries, I think uh, that's going to be key. So we either have to bring people in or we have to find ways to boost our productivity or, or we have to accept we're going to be labor constrained and therefore growing more slowly. So uh, I think the need is there. And we just hosted a roundtable with the Minister of Immigration a few weeks ago. And there was a very strong sense from you know the business community here. We need people. And the fact that the government wasn't able to process people uh, in 2020 was as a big issue because you know we've seen a 50% drop. So I think when I looked at those immigration numbers and the targets, I think, well... <laughs> Okay, I assume implicit in that is we're going to ramp up the capacity so we can actually process those and bring people in. So uh, that's always been a big challenge. How quickly can you bring someone in? Because you can't wait six six months or nine months or, or, or a year for a business. You you need people within weeks. So we need a a capacity that can process efficiently and fast. And if we're going to ramp up immigration, we need that capacity. Uh, I think the international travel is still going to be a challenge. So yes, if you're moving to a country two weeks, self-isolation, uh, when you're going to be here for 20 plus years, you can manage that. That's not like a short-term tourism. However, uh, you know, there's still a lot of fear and concern of, of being able to leave your country and get here. So I think it will take time to recover. I think the economics will start to require and drive that and especially as a vaccine starts to be put in place in 2021 here and in other countries i think we will we will certainly see those numbers come back up i just i don't want to predict how quickly they'll come up next year because i think a lot of that depends upon government processing but the need is there uh, and to your point you know we need immigrants not just from a, a quantity point of view uh, our companies need to attract the best and the brightest uh, we've got a lot of 
companies and it goes back to this scale uh, you can't find that person with that specialized retail experience or that international business experience necessarily in this region our market too small you have to be able to recruit but we also know some of our young people don't want to go into some of those traditional occupations we've still got seasonal industries so at the low skill end the high skill end the seasonal we are going to need people uh, all we've got to find some other solution of ensuring our economy can grow and you know you might find technology for some, some of those uh, but changing beds and and things in a hotel in charlottetown in the peak season uh, i'm not quite sure that's ever going to be a, a full year uh, industry so i'd rather see our people working full year full time uh, and then kind of using immigration to help with those seasonal peaks, to help with some of those temporary needs, but also bringing in new skills and insights. And it goes back to this, we have to be open. Uh, it's interesting when you travel internationally and you see certain countries that seem really good at this, and then they seem really backwards in another area. So bringing that, you know, sharing those ideas, bringing those perspectives, bringing those different cultural perspectives. I think if we're willing to embrace that and work with that and learn from each other, uh, I think it can be very good and very healthy. But again, uh, we have to kind of manage that as we grow and develop because for this region, we are not very diverse. We are not a Toronto when you look at visible minorities. So again, we have to be able to kind of maybe do that at a way that we can see the benefits. Because uh, I grew up in the UK and, you know, we had our inner city riots. Like you, you see what can happen when it, it doesn't quite work and you get communities who are not doing well. So we need to select immigrants that will prosper. We need to think about them as families and not just as the principal applicants who we score on the point system. We need them to succeed because otherwise we they're going to have struggles or they're just going to leave and go elsewhere so i think there's a lot of dimensions uh, to think about and uh, but certainly immigration i think will be key for years to come yeah i think the family thing is very interesting um in new brunswick in the last few years they've focused more on couples that have been married for a while or and that already have kids so if you look at the distribution of uh, permanent residents there's a big chunk under 15 and a chunk sort of 30 to 40, not much above 40, but sort of say 30, 25 to 40. And the distribution is completely different or significantly different, sorry, than Ontario on that front, which I think is very interesting because what it means is New Brunswick is, there's two things going on there. One is they've realized that there's a better chance of retention once the kids are in school and if they actually like school, uh, which is kind of an interesting oh. observation, but I think a good observation. And then secondarily, that, you know, if you're bringing in young footloose professionals, they just don't, it's harder for them to put down roots. So they come to Halifax, they may or may not like their job. Uh, and then they pick up and move to Toronto. Whereas you, if you come as a family, it's a different dynamic, right? Because you've got broader considerations. And the other thing that I think they figured out, uh, which I think is very smart, is that the second income earner has, is basically unencumbered. They can work in any sector once they get their work permit. So what happens is, you know, you've, we've got a hotel here in Moncton that I think the general manager told me they have 14 different countries represented and none of them have come, you know, as a sponsored immigrant. They're all here as spouses or, or they came as students and then they graduated or whatever, but they did the, the actual um, hotel didn't actually have to go out and recruit immigrants because they were already here in Moncton. So I think that's an interesting dynamic too, in terms of the second the spouse in a couple uh, ha, you know, has much more flexibility and can go into maybe part-time or seasonal or, 
or more service industry roles where there's where there's a lot of demand. So that's that's an interesting uh, reality. And as long as they're not in a regulated occupation, so if they're in healthcare or teaching where credentials, that that can be the the, the challenge. So again, it, it probably does depend where their skill set is. If they're, they're if they're skilled in a certain sector, that can be certainly a challenge. If they can't work, then yeah. that that family is moving on too. So yeah, it's a huge issue, and I think that's again having a family, as you said, having a family focused outcome from the very early on. You'd want to know if the spouse is a welder or a nurse or whatever. And then you could say, okay, here's the potential opportunities. Here's maybe the cities or towns you should be looking at. So I think that's really, really good. Uh, Just a couple more questions. I wanted to ask you about the politics of this. So I know you're not a politician, you're an economist, you run a think tank, but you have been around since 1999. You've seen what happens when governments have to belt tighten, when, when the priorities shift and maybe not uh, shift in a way that's preferential to one region of the country or the other. So you have national policy that's maybe focused on on priorities that aren't necessarily the priorities or should be the priorities of this region. And I'm a little worried coming out of the pandemic that this is going to be the case. When we came out of the 2008 recession, as you would know uh, intimately, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia did not do well. And in fact, I think you could argue they had both of them had essentially a lost decade. If you look at GDP growth over that period, PEI was different, right? But but Nova Scotia and then Newfoundland and Labrador has its own set of challenges related to oil and gas and mining. But New Brunswick and Nova Scotia did not come out of that recession, and there didn't seem to be a lot of interest. There wasn't a lot of angst in Ottawa. There wasn't a lot of you know policy people running around the halls of of, of Parliament saying, "Oh, geez, we got to help Nova Scotia." Um, that's a voter issue and it's a reality. And, and plus, I don't think we were actually pushing that hard. I think we, a lot of our government folks sort of just accepted this was the reality, but that's a story for another day. But I guess the question for you, when we look at the, the, the push to become carbon neutral by 2050, we've got a uh, carbon tax going up to 170 a ton from 50 today. And that's only in the next 10 years. When you think about the last couple of times the federal government had to reduce its deficits. It basically pushed a lot of that onto the provinces, right? They basically just downloaded that cost reduction on the provinces. If you think about the airport situation that we talked about earlier, um, are you worried that we're just going to get lost in the shuffle here and and, uh, uh, and not be a priority uh, in Ottawa? Well, I think there's always a challenge. It's kind of some similarities maybe with the discussion we said about, you know, the big global and national firms and, and how do they do work with their kind of local kind of units? Do they give them any flexibility or innovation or are they just tied to towing the line and they've got no flexibility? So, again, I think with any policy, you know, there's always regional implications because industry structures vary, scale of firms need. So uh, if you're really trying to support economic development across the country, you do need to have some flexibility and tailoring that and I think we've certainly seen that in recent years for example with the Atlantic immigration pilot uh, a willingness to say well why do you need immigrants in a region that's got 10% unemployment rate well maybe because you don't fully understand all the dynamics and what's really going on so uh, can we find a way that really kind of targets that and has a big focus on settlement so I certainly think there's some opportunity there uh, you know Newfoundland and Labrador is kind of probably the other thing that kind of is keeping me awake at night from that point of view um, we're working on a piece 
based on that, you know, they've got some fairly serious challenges, a very undiversified economy dependent on a few key sectors and a lot of challenges in several of those. This is not just an oil story from my perspective. You add in the demographics and the fiscal situation. So there's a lots of challenges there and they have been certainly in negotiation with the federal government. So, you know, they got the, the loan guarantee for Muskrat Falls. They're trying to negotiate on rate mitigation. Uh, they've got some funding recently to help. So there has been some a response, but I think uh, potentially that there might need to be some more help there. So in bigger picture, uh, you know, sustainability environment is going to be here. Um, but we've been very focused on reducing provincial greenhouse gas emissions. Um, whereas, you know, if we have an offshore oil industry or we have a mine that might want to open here, that's going to increase our, our, our greenhouse gases, but we can do it globally uh, much more efficiently than... Uh, so I think we have to be careful about our economy where we're so dependent upon a few key exporters that our environmental policy does not undermine our economy. So I do think we need as a region to be very careful about that. Yes, we're so small, we don't necessarily kind of fit on the radar screen to a big way. So I think we do have to be very mindful of ensuring that policies helping this region grow and facilitating look these are our needs this is not toronto we've got a small market we've got a rural population like i think we do need policies nationally that respond to and allow for some innovation and flexibility uh, and again i think as you see our population decline as a share of canada that's that was a big concern of our board uh, in discussions that i've seen in years past that we're just losing influence so uh, th this may be some hope uh, the way that the governments allow provinces to come up with their own carbon strategies how that's going to work out with a new plan and uh, and increasing that carbon tax remains to be seen so i think there needs to be that balance and i think this region needs to articulate uh, this is where we need some flexibility to do seeing things differently because this is not toronto or vancouver so i think that makes for good policy whether that makes for good politics uh, that's kind of going beyond my area of expertise but uh, you know i grew up with mrs thatcher and she did a lot of things that people liked but she did a lot of things that they economists didn't like. So good economics doesn't always seem to translate into good politics, unfortunately. So you talked earlier about a uh, uh, government-induced pandemic. In other words, I don't know if that was exactly the words you used, but you basically said government came yeah. along and shut down industries, right? And then you implied that then they have a responsibility because they shut down the industries to think about the health of those industries and maybe pump cash in or do whatever they have to do, right? Is that, was, is that a good summary of what you said? Yeah, I think I think it's it's maybe not so much the kind of the pumping cash in. It's you know my focus now has been how do we get those industries back? Okay, but how, but I guess the question for yeah. for you yeah. would be if government comes along and says okay you can't fish cod anymore in Newfoundland, it's it's it you know or government comes along and says okay we don't want oil anymore, uh, isn't there a similar responsibility for the federal government to say okay and now because we've decided people outside of Newfoundland and Labrador, people in Ottawa or Toronto or wherever decided we're not going to uh, pump oil anymore uh, and they lose nothing and they're telling a province that's going to lose everything. Isn't there some obligation on the rest of the country to bear some of that burden or are we all just on our own? And I, by the way, I put Alberta in that mix too, right? This is, you know, you, you, you benefit from those industries for decades and then you decide Oop, we don't like them anymore. And the benefits, the cost of that accrued a very small uh, share of the population, a relatively small share of the population. So what are your thoughts on that? So what's the, if the federal government decides we, you know, we don't want to be in the oil business anymore, and they haven't decided that, but, you know, de facto, we're going to be doing a lot less oil and gas. So what do you do with the, the affected jurisdictions? 
Yeah, and I, I think, you know, things happen globally. We've lost manufacturing plants because, you know, the exchange rate goes up and, you know, that's outside of our control to some extent. It's been driven by other factors and, you know, that there's serious economic dissipation that happens. And, you know, you know from economic development, you, you just don't create the next very fan or the next, you know, homegrown business quickly. It takes time. So I think any time where you are implementing policies that you've maybe changed the rules of the game you know people have invested in a coal plant that they thought was going to be there for 30 years or 40 years and then suddenly saying well no it's got to close in 10 years time like there has to be some recognition of the investments that have been made under a certain set of rules when you've changed the rules you have to i think uh, respond to the fact that there's some implications and liability there so i do think you know governments need to be mindful if we are shutting down because of our policies effectively a certain sector how do you help those people transition uh, but is, this is not a short this is not a, a quick solution it's about how do you facilitate transition of you know 55 year old manufacturing uh, people in uh, northern new brunswick uh, when the new jobs are being a very different skill set somewhere else so i do think we have to think very carefully about those transitions and how do you help facilitate an economy and how do you help facilitate that economic growth? So uh, yes, uh, I think we want to be very mindful with environmental policies about how that plays out in specific jurisdictions, because when we've got four producing oil fields, uh, that's a big part of the economy. Uh, it's not a well-diversified industry, it's four producers. Uh, and the same with a lot of our industries, it's one or two producers. So again, anything that impacts those has a big economic impact in a fairly small region of just over 2 million people. So last question, really appreciate your time today, David. Last question, though, comes back to the role of APEC. So about a decade ago, I was doing a presentation in Fredericton, it might even been more than a decade ago, and an old fellow came up to me after, animated old fellow, grabbed me by the arm and said, I'm Hal Fredericks. And I was around when APEC was started in the 1950s and it, you know, we were supposed to, and he went on a big rant about how things were supposed to be different and APEC was going to be this beacon of light for the region and, and so on. Now the book, his book here, what happened to the blueprint for Atlantic advance, which I have on my bookshelf. It's not an anti APEC screed by any, any measure. In fact, uh, Elizabeth Beale actually has a quote on the front cover. So it's not anti APEC in any way, but it is kind of anti you know, we were supposed to do a few things in the 50s and 60s that we didn't do well. And now the, the you know, economy has, has um, not grown nearly as fast as the rest of the country on average. Now, having said that, like Hal needs to understand that if you look at it on a per capita basis, this region has done quite, we've actually been playing catch up in many areas in terms of personal income and so on. So we've actually made quite a bit of progress. But in terms of absolute growth, yeah. Those millions and millions and millions of population growth, for example, across the country in the last 50 years, we didn't see much of that. We saw a little bit, not much. So what is the role for, what is the vision for APEC moving forward? What are the key themes? Maybe it's in this 20-year document that you talked about earlier, but what are the key things that you're going to be focusing on as a, as a research institute to make to help us, help policymakers understand how they can get back to at least a moderate level of economic growth moving forward? Yeah, as an economist, I often think about uh, one of the early concepts I kind of learned in school, you know, the production possibility frontier. And if you, you know, you've got a choice of producing wheat or, 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 or you know, 
cars, for example, you know, you can, you've got a choice. You can reduce all of one or all of the other. You can find something. But the key is, you know, are you operating at your full potential? And so I think there's, there's two issues for Land of Canada. You know, are we operating on our full potential? We have a geography. We have a natural resource base. We have small population. Like there's certain things that are given that you just can't change in the short term. But within that, are we making the most of what we have? And I think that is the first consideration let's do the best with what we have and then the second is how can you expand that production possibility frontier so you can have more of either uh, so how do you help grow the economy so we can have you know more scale up in firms so those are kind of the way i think about it you know do the best we can with what we have accepting that you know we are not toronto or vancouver uh, we are not you know next to boston or new york so how do we do the best with what we have and then how do we grow our potential beyond that and so when i Kind of think about where APEC is, and it comes back to provide the insights and the ideas. So again, help people understand what do the next twenty years look like, and what are some things we need to be thinking about. How do we stimulate and encourage some innovation in policymaking and in business that starts to make some different decisions that will kind of change that those parameters. So we're very much focused on looking ahead. Uh, what are the the big issues? So our demographics. Uh, it's just. It's, it's there. It's We're getting older every year. We can predict that with a great degree of certainty. So what, what are the implications of that and how do we manage that with our healthcare and our fiscal finances? As we've talked about, we are very dependent upon international markets. A lot of our businesses would just not be here if they were only selling to Atlantic Canadians. 2.4 million is not enough to sustain an offshore oil industry, a Michelin plant, a McCain's French fry plant. Like We have to be export oriented. That is not going to change. And it's the same for digital technology. There's not enough of a market for clean tech or digital tech here. We have to be global. So how do we manage that with a, a world that's changing? And you know, China seems to be doing well. Uh, the US still has some challenges there's some big hits because of covid so how have markets changed how have our competitors changed how do we help people understand where those opportunities are digitalization and automation uh, it's a key trend we've done already some work on that with covid but understanding we're going to have more remote working we're going to have more e-commerce we're going to have more so how do we in this region leverage that encourage our firms to position themselves for the future because if we don't change your competitor does uh, ultimately you're not going to be in business because you're just going to be uh, out competed so and then the final thing is the environment the, the, these policies and these pressures are going to be there how can we leverage them for the benefit of our region and yes in a hundred years will we still have a refinery will we still have an offshore oil industry perhaps not uh, given where those policies are aiming but you know, we have some decades before then to continue to produce and to think about what that transition looks like. So I really want us to be focused on the big issues. That's why we lean so heavily onto COVID. Uh, so we've identified what we think are some of the big kind of driving forces and where we need to be looking at that. So we want to bring insights to that. We want to help facilitate change, bring some ideas to the table. And again, we're constrained by scale. Uh, you know, the, the bigger we are, we've got more capacity to maybe engage and, and work with policymakers and businesses to a greater degree. But right now, let's focus on the bit that we can do and kind of see where that takes us. And, you know, if there's other big issues like COVID come along, we want to be very mindful of what are the big issues? What can we bring to the table that helps people understand the situation? Maybe think about it from a holistic point of view 
think about it from a forward-looking point of view because uh, often you know it's this micro macro you can look at your own business and you see this and the world looks fine well i'm just going to increase my wages because i can't attract someone well that doesn't work at the economy because unless you get more people drawn into the labor market, you're still competing for the same labor supply. So helping people understand you know, the economics of these policies and how can we help really grow the economy uh, for, for everyone, that, that really goes back to our mission that we talked about at the beginning. David Chandy, thanks for joining us on Growing Pains. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. It's been good. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George is engineered by the great Zachary Peltier and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.